In episode 64 of MobyCast, John shares his thoughts on GlueCon 2019 and then dives into one of his favorite sessions, which focused on AWS's Aurora Serverless. Welcome to MobyCast, a weekly conversation about cloud-native development, AWS, and building distributed systems. Let's jump right in. Welcome, Chris and Rich. It's another episode of MobyCast. Hey. Hey, guys. Good to be back. Right on. So, Rich, what have you been up to this past week? Closing deals. Closing deals. Yeah, uh, that's what I like to hear. Can yeah, you give we, me a few while you're at it? If I come across some that I think you should have, I'm definitely passing them your way. That's for sure. <laughs> right um, on. Yeah, it's been a good week. We, we've been working really hard on outbound sales. <laughs> We're doing LinkedIn outreach. We're doing physical mailer outreach. And we've been doing it for a little over a year and a half. And it's starting to really, really starting to pay back all the investment. So it's it's a it's a nice feeling. Although now it's, you know, it's now we have the other problem where, you know, we have to fulfill all this work. And do we have the resources, and the team and the time to do it? But it's a better problem to have than no work, I guess. Yeah. Well, I plugged your company secret stash at the at the conference I was at this past week. If people oh, want really good WordPress development, you are the one to go to for sure. How about you, Chris? What do you been up to it's been a pretty normal normal week I like normal uh, yeah getting ready for a, a trip coming up here to uh san diego although looking at the weather it's like seattle weather is a bit warmer than it is in san diego which kind of go figure but i you know i have been listening to a really cool podcast recently that i've been enjoying quite a bit it's called to live and die in la and it's a crazy story it's it's one of these true crime podcast where a Rolling Stone reporter gets introduced early on to this missing person's case within like the first week of this woman going missing and then just spends, just really goes on, just just researches it and goes deep into it with a private investigator. And it's just, it's a crazy story. It's like, you can't write, it's it's like the truth is stranger than fiction. And, Very cool. Um, I've like been enjoying it a lot. Yeah. 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 And as for me, I guess what I've been up to lately is going to be the topic of the rest of the show. So I went to GlueCon this week, which is a really fun conference down in kind of the Northwest area, Northwest of Denver, just between Denver and Boulder. And I've been going for about four years and it's run by Eric Norlin, who I consider a friend. And yeah, it usually just has lots of cool innovative talks around open source, around cloud, around APIs, around, you know, for, for a while when blockchain was hot, it had some some neat talks about how blockchain worked and what people were trying to do with it. And also, it also it, they tend to sprinkle in a few out there talks. This year's out there talk was about how to program for quantum computers, which I was really excited to learn about and, and actually super surprised. I thought it was going to be like, oh, yeah, this, you know, here's how the scientists do it. But it was more like, here's a place where you can go sign up for your own account. We have tools that help you restate your problem that you're trying to solve in a in a way that the quantum computer can understand and everyone gets a free minute and i was like what this is this is cloud computing now you can get to quantum computers in the cloud today and they're like yeah we're just trying to just trying to get people to realize that this is something they can use and so wow here we go quantum computing i i did want to so you know chris when you talked about DockerCon, you were sort of disappointed and i think it was a, a docker specific thing that you know there's not a lot of innovation coming out of docker the company now and it was really an enterprisey feeling co- conference like use docker's enterprise tools and here's how docker works kind of talks for the most part right yeah i mean it, it's evolved over the years to become you know just kind of a feeling of, of less excitement kind of more more enterprise, more corporate, just again, as they transition to go from 
kind of a new startup with lots of innovation to now like, hey, we got to make money. What's the business model and, and focus on customers and, 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 and the financials. And being a, that it is DockerCon and it's the official conference of Docker, right? It's, it's run by Docker itself. So they set the agenda, they set the talks and just the overall person, personality of the, of the conference. So, yep. Yep. And at Glucon, I'm used to sort of general talks that aren't really commercial and any, you know, maybe a couple of commercial talks by some of the top sponsors, but people, everybody was sort of talking about how this year, a lot of the talks, maybe even as many as 70% felt a little bit like, Hey, here's this tool we're building. Here's how it works. Here's why you should use it, which is kind of disappointing, right? There's, I was, I would go into a lot of talks, excited, ready to take notes, thinking this could be a great one for MobyCast. And then halfway through, I realized I'm getting kind of pitched and stopped taking notes. This really this feels like about. a trend now. Yeah. It's not just. I mean, I, I, this happened at DockerCon as well, and it's just mm -hmm. like it does. If it's it's super disappointing. Yeah, um, you know where it basically feels like you're just. It's a it's a marketing pitch. Yeah, um, and it's very specific to that particular company's product or service that they're they're selling, and yep. it's it's just not very useful. And like I said, it's it's a pitch. Right. So, right. Really wish they it kind of felt like that's been taboo in the past, like that just is not allowed. Right. Yeah. How is this happening? Is it is it that people are clever and they're CFPs and it seems general? Because like a lot, like I did not know a lot of these were going to be pitches until I was in there and realizing I'm getting pitched. So mm -hmm. yeah, it must be that like companies are kind of working around that. I, the same thing with me. I mean, every every time you know I've gone to a talk, it's like from the description, you know, it looked looked interesting. It's like oh wow, this is pretty cool. Like how how do you how do you debug? like complicated like distributed systems microservices architecture distributed tracing and it's like oh, that sounds interesting let's go check that out and it's like what <laughs> this is yeah. just this is someone's you know vaporware <laughs> um, you know that right. they're, they're just, and it's just come on it becomes like so, a yeah there was a, lot of, there was a lot of that and you know it's kind of fun. ironic is that what i'm about to talk about which was one of my favorite talks is unfortunately it is actually a product plug for aws but since it's aws and since we talk about aws a lot on this show and you know since honestly the real innovation the trustworthy innovation currently seems to be happening inside the public clouds and less outside the public clouds i guess it makes sense to go ahead and give aws a pass on this and go through this talk and even though it's a pitch for an aws product so the, well, the there, product, there's a big difference here though right yeah the title of the talk was aurora serverless yeah it wasn't yes. like how you too can run a relational database in a serverless way in the cloud, <laughs> right? Like that. Yeah, you're right. right. And that, that's no, the problem, right? Hiding. So it's yeah. totally okay as long as you tell me up front, like this right. is what it's about. Right. Yep. That's a great point. So and the and the talk was very good, and and I really am interested, and I and I think a lot of our listeners are interested too, and in, and in AWS pulls off some of this, some of the really cool operational stuff they do with their with their cloud tooling. So this is Aurora Serverless, which which is essentially you know database in the cloud that you don't have to scale up or scale down because they just you just send data to it and they take care of the rest. So you just SQL in the cloud basically with a relational database. You give it a schema. And then you can query and you don't worry about managing connections. You don't worry about tuning it. You don't worry about how big your instance is. You just worry about sending SQL to it. So how did they pull this off? 
I was kind of curious. And it's and it's a thing that I've been excited about because, you know, scaling up or down your database, vertical scaling of your database in AWS prior to Aurora Serverless has always been painful. It's always been like, okay, you got to find a window where you can migrate your data to, a, or, you know, migrate to a bigger database. Nothing can be running during that window. And, you know, it's not something you can do when you're get, you're getting hammered by a traffic spike and, and everybody's yelling, why can't this handle the load? Like, you can, that's not the time when you can scale up your database. Okay, so Chris, this is, I guess, going to be one of those ones where I'll have to do most of the talking, even though I'm not not really the expert here on the show. So, but I'll try to, what I'll try to do is, is talk through some of the things that I learned and then see if you have any sort of comments or ways to, to think about it that I'm not considering. Sound good? Sure, sounds good. Okay. So first, uh, okay, so the talk was by Anup Gupta. He's, a, I think, basically a product manager at AWS. So he's really product focused on how Aurora Serverless works. But he's, he's quite technical and it, and it was, you know, as all the product managers at AWS are. And so he was able to give a, a good sense of, of the architecture, the, the software architecture and how it's all put together. He started by giving an overview of RDS. We've done that on the show before. It's a database in the cloud. Everybody kind of knows that, but it's it's provisioned. So, and, and RDS is, you know, literally MySQL or literally Postgres or literally SQL Server or Oracle or MariaDB running in the cloud. And then Aurora came after that to deal with some, just some scaling issues as well as some licensing issues that those other databases have. And also just to, to kind of, you know, make a, an AWS branded specific tool to, I guess, pull people in, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, the, you know, the big deal with Aurora is it's, it's storage, underlying storage layer, right? And so it, it's all, Aurora is all about speed and availability. Um, mm-hmm. So what you would expect from the commercial RDB, BMS engines, but with things like MySQL and Postgres, so it's purpose-built storage, underlying storage architecture, which, by the way, is also used by Dynamo, right? So mm-hmm. um, this is like one of their core gems that they have. Their AWS is the is this this Aurora storage technology, right? Yeah. So Aurora Aurora works today with with provisions. It's provisioned. So you say this is the size you want. Maybe it's a micro or a, or a medium or large. And then you pay based on that size and based on the amount of data that you store in it. And the size is like, a, I guess it's per minute or hour that it runs. Do you actually know that off the top of your head, whether it's minutes or hours? It's, it's just how long. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you can think Aurora is, is really no different than the other RDS services, right? It's just, yep. again, it's it's all about the underlying storage. So you still have to provision these servers. There's You still have to pick the instance type. It's running MySQL. It's running Postgres. But it's, again, what you're getting is you're getting the the performance and the the availability at a at a fraction of the cost that you normally would get. So it's really that storage layer. Right. The reason I was talking about how you pay for it is because that'll come up again with, when mm-hmm. we talk about Aurora serverless, mm-hmm. because you don't really pay by the instance type anymore. And you do pay for how long the things are running. I think it's, I'm sure on serverless, it's by the minute. So probably the same on regular Aurora. It's probably by the minute. So not rounding up mm-hmm. to the hour. Yeah. Or, I mean, in a way, it kind of like doesn't matter, right? Because it's like with Aurora normal, it's always <laughs> on, right? Right. It's always, it's, it's, you're, you're, you're paying for 24 hours a day, right? Um, yeah. For as long yep, as it's running. Sure. So it doesn't matter whether they're really billing you at the second or the minute or the hour. Like the important point here is that you're just paying for it 24 seven for as long as your mm-hmm. database exists on, on the network, right? Yeah. That's Versus a great with point. serverless, 
totally different story. Yep, yep. So he kind of then went through, you know, the question, what is a serverless database? I guess that they, you know, inside AWS, they they literally asked themselves that. Like if we're, if we're all about making things serverless, what does that mean for a database? And some points he talked about where it has to have automated capacity management. So it's got to scale down and scale up on its own without people doing anything. It's got to be so that you only pay for what you use. And it's got to, you can't worry about things like patch management. You can't worry about things like performance management, like tweaking database parameters. It's got to have built-in availability. So you don't have to make sure that it's running in multiple IZs or you know across regions or anything like that. It's just got to do that for you. And then finally, it's got to have the, the same customer interfaces that you're used to. So putting in a schema or making SQL queries has to be the same as as it was for Aurora or this, you know, this be that Postgres or be that MySQL, MySQL, you know, syntax. It's got to be the same. It's, it can't introduce a whole new language to talk to it. It's got to be something that you're used to. So that's those were their tenants when they decided to make Aurora serverless. John, did did they make any comparisons to Dynamo? Because I mean, essentially, DynamoDB is NoSQL serverless. And Aurora Serverless is basically the exact same thing, but it's for a relational database instead of a NoSQL database. So I'm just kind of wondering if, as they were talking about what is a serverless database and what it meant, did they compare that to what they've already done with Dynamo? They didn't compare it to what they've done with Dynamo. And and Aurora as a serverless database has a major, major limitation in terms of how it scales that Dynamo does not have. And I guess we'll get into that in a minute. So when they were looking at how to build this, they thought about different workloads that RDBMS databases typically handle. And they were wanting to look at, they were wanting to make sure that they could do things that are useful for people with really episodic workloads like dev and test, like it just comes in and goes away, you know, mostly idle or really spiky workloads like gaming, where you have to provision for the peak usage. So they wanted to make sure they could handle things sort of across the across the realm of the types of workloads they get, not just the consistent, you know, transactions, transactions, transactions coming in at a regular rhythm. Because if that's all you have, then maybe it does make sense to just have your provision database. You know what you need, right? Yeah, because I'm, I'm sure, I mean, it's absolutely the case that you're paying a premium for having this, the convenience of serverless, right? Yes. So like, if you don't have the predictability, if you're not using it, you know, 24-7, where it's kind of just sporadically using it, then something like serverless makes a lot of sense. But if you're if you're just kind of like the normal steady workload type of thing, then serverless is probably not a great, great solution for you. Exactly. Hey there, this is Rich. Please pardon this quick interruption. We recently passed an internal milestone of 30,000 listens, and I wanted to take a moment to thank you for the support. I was also hoping to encourage you to head on over to iTunes to leave us a review. Positive feedback and constructive criticism are both incredibly important to us. So give us an idea of how we're doing, and we'll promise to keep publishing new episodes every week. Okay, let's dive back in. So then he got into how it works, and this is where we'll spend the rest of the, the conversation. And I guess the thing that was most surprising to me is that, and it makes sense, right? It, it's just vertical scaling. So Aurora Serverless will scale you down to the smallest instance sizes, if that's all you need, or scale you up to the largest instance sizes, if that's what you need. It does not scale you out whatsoever. And that so no, no horizontal scaling capabilities at all. So they're not adding servers, they're just changing servers and he talked about basically how you customers were already doing this today 
And I guess, you know, this is something that Kelsus has never done, done, but it is a doable thing. If you want to switch out your instance type, you can put a proxy in front of your database and basically get another instance type warm and then switch the database instance underneath. And then the proxy can handle rerouting to the new instance. And basically the new instance is still pointing you like all the data is in some disks, right? So changing instances is just a matter of changing what program is pointing at the data on the disk. You know, the data doesn't have to be moved. It's just that the application that is fetching the data and inserting the data has to be on a bigger, smaller, you know, capability machine. And so that's essentially what this is. They have a proxy layer and then they have what what's called a pool of, of warm instances. So as they see that you're about to scale, they'll warm up in, an instance for you, make sure it's ready, and then they will switch it out. So let me tell you a, a little bit more about exactly how that works. So the proxy layer is a multi-tenant proxy layer. And of course, it's multi-AZ, it's multi-region, it is just, it is, it is ready for you. And it's multi-tenant, meaning it's not just you hitting that proxy layer. So then I think that is to sort of protect AWS's own costs. They don't want to have, they don't want to waste containers or, or machines, should, you know, on, on customers that are not really fully throttling that proxy layer. And it is a place where they can keep customer data totally separate and segregated. And it's fine. You know, the, the different calls through that proxy are not going to be able to see each other. And I guess they also did a lot of testing around making sure that there's no noisy neighbor problems in the proxy. So that's the, and, and the proxy, all it, all it is doing is just taking the SQL statements and sending them to the database. And then that warm, that warm pool each instance is for a particular customer and, and that customer's workload that they're doing. So the warm pool might, the pool itself might have lots and lots of instances for lots and lots of customers, but whatever it's warming up for your workloads is going to either be a bigger or a smaller instance based on the direction your work seems to be scaling. Let me find here in my notes, there's one of the, there's some things about the timing of this that were kind of, that were just amazing. Let's see here. So basically what it does is it looks for, oh, there's a, one third component to this, they have the, the multi-tenant proxy layer, they have this pool of warm instances, and then they have a monitor, monitoring system. So the monitoring system is just looking at your CPU, it's essentially just CPU usage and connection. And as it sees CPU usage starting to get climb or connections starting to get up to, towards max connections, that's when it warms up a new instance. So if you're scaling up, it's going to get one ready. And then it, I guess they have a the ability to read in pages of the database very, very quickly and have that thing ready, have the buffer of the database ready to go. And then they look for a little window of traffic, like lowering, and then it takes one second to switch from the old database to the new database. So you do have a one second essentially outage in your system as you scale up or scale down between databases. Just amazing, right? Like most applications can handle that, especially if they're you know, web-based applications, one person can wait an extra second. They'll just think their internet connection had a hiccup. Yeah, pretty pretty cool. I mean, it, you know, it kind of all makes sense. Like the like, if you had to do this yourself, like you could do this with your own proxy, and then you would do you would play around with things like um, snapshots, yep. right, and backups and all that kind of stuff, right? So, and they kind of have the same problem, right? Where the that one second hiccup, that's basically where they find a spot where like they can basically lock the database 
stop the write, stop the transaction, so they can switch the pointer yeah. of, of what's of where they're pointing to from a storage um, aspect. But they need that, you know, you have to do that pause, right? So that you don't have, like, you don't miss any any of the the, the operations that come in. Um, so for them, because of the, the the Aurora storage layer, that can be really, really fast versus like if we had to build our, it ourselves, doing things like RDS snapshots and restores, it's going to take a lot longer. Right. So one of the things that Aurora serverless can do is it can scale all the way down to zero. So if you just stop having transactions and it notices, it's, it, it'll just, if, if you configure it, if you if you let it have its default configuration, it'll scale to nothing. You can tell it that you want a provision capacity unit, you know, the minimum to be one, in which case it'll never scale all the way down to zero. If you do let it scale all the way down to zero, then you can the the time to get a database up for you as soon as you start getting traffic is 30 seconds. So if you can't handle a 30 second wait, then you need to keep one one capacity unit provision at all times. So just around like you know, one of the questions was when would you not use this? What is when is this not a good idea? And you know, you already brought up Chris. Well, it's maybe not the greatest idea if you know exactly what you need, because then you can just save money with a you know a, with your consistent trans transaction flow, getting the exact size you need. Another reason you might not be able to use it is if you have constantly long running transactions. In that case, they'll just never be able to find that scale point because they, there's just never that little brief window where they can get in there and stop transactions. And I guess another another one, and maybe you could help me understand this because I didn't quite understand what this would mean. But if you use a lot of temporary tables, then they also can't find a time to scale. I guess maybe because those are just in memory. Is that is that the reason why, Chris? Do you know? Yeah, I would. I, would, I mean, it's I'm sure. It, I mean, it just has to do with with concurrency and, and and locking and something like a temp table is being built on the fly, right? So there's yeah. there's issues around that, right? And 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 yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, I don't I don't actually know whether or not it's it's back to disk, um, yeah, back to storage. Um, I would imagine it is. Maybe. It seems like you know so, database, even if it's temporary, yeah. probably is written. Yeah. And then I guess the the last reason that you wouldn't use it is if you need to be able to react to scaling in less than 30 to 90 seconds. So if you're real spiky and you start scaling suddenly and you need to react to that, you know, scaling up right, in, you know, almost instantly instead of, okay, it's going to be 30 to 90 seconds before that new warm instance is ready to get switched in, then it's also not a great use case. But, you know, arguably, if you need to re react to scaling that quickly, probably you just need to size for, for a peak, right? Like there's nothing that's going to react that quickly. Well, I think in that case too, that's going from zero to something, right? It no, no, no. 30 it, to 90 seconds. It is. So the switchover happens in one second, but the reaction to the, to the scaling does take 30 to 90 seconds. So if it sees transactions climbing, climbing, oh my goodness, you're running out of CPU. I'm going to get one ready and then I'm going to find that one second to switch you mm -hmm. over. That mm -hmm. whole process can take 30 to 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is also amazing. It's just incredible. Like, yeah. Well, and that's just like a policy setting, right? Because it's to to minimize the thrashing of, of scaling up and down prematurely, yeah. right? So it's it's kind of just verifying that, yeah, there's been enough, enough data here that I'm confident that the scaling decision is going to be the right thing to do. Right. Which actually is also cool too, because that means maybe you can scale up and down, you know, a few times per 10 minutes, which would be like, wow, 
that's a that's a lot of moving around instances, but that's cool. Mm-hmm. Let's see here. So you know, that's it's that simple. They, you know, I talked about the noisy neighbor stuff. Oh, the one one of the things that was kind of outside the the scope of his talk, but came up when he was talking about noisy neighbor stuff. He was talking about how a new thing at AWS is this thing called cellular architecture. Have you heard of them talk about this, Chris? Yeah, I mean, this is basically just partitioning, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's just you're you're breaking things up into its own like cells that can handle and and I think at the end of the day you're relying on just partitioning it up. Right. So so yeah, and they they have a rule where a cell has at most 5000 instances in it, so that multi that multi AZ, I'm sorry, that multi tenant proxy layer, there's there's going to be lots and lots and lots of those, but each one is going to have no more than 5000 instances in it and they're going to be multi AZ. But that cellular level design gives them better outage protection than even just AZ, you know, multi-AZ deployments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, all about limiting the blast radius. Exactly, exactly. And so the same goes with the with the warm pool of instances. Those there cannot be more than five thousand instances in that warm pool before they create a new cell. And then at that cellular cellular level is also where they were doing the the testing uh, to make sure that there's not noisy neighbor problems. And I guess most of the work that they did with the noisy neighbor problems is just making sure that there's no garbage collection pauses because apparently the the garbage collection is what really hinders other users of the proxy so it's basically smooth 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 cpu you know memory usage they didn't get it he didn't get into exactly how they accomplished that though and then yeah the reason that the instances are not multi-tenant is that they just found that based on reasons of security and based on just not really knowing exactly how much usage the instances were going to get, they couldn't they couldn't really keep their their requirements around noisy neighbors and around security all the way down to the database level. So they just had to give everybody, you know, separate instances of databases. And there was there was not a way to to do multi-tenant databases themselves, which they also don't do in regular Aurora, or normal Aurora. Yeah. So I was really excited. You know, I met a noop later and I told him that we were going to talk about this. And so hopefully he's excited to hear our conversation. Very cool. Anything yeah. else that, that you wanted to bring up about, you know, I think we'll probably use this for, for I'm imagining a couple of our clients that would definitely benefit from this, where we have had issues of trying to scale quickly uh, up, up our database where we have some spiky traffic. So we'll definitely look at this. What about you, Chris? You know, I have my own personal blog and I've been meaning to upgrade. I need to go from the, the latest version. I'm using Ghost and latest version is, it only supports MySQL, no longer supports Postgres. So I, I need to switch to MySQL anyhow. And then, you know, I'm back in it with RDS, which is, you know, it's not, I mean, for a personal blog, it's expensive, right? So this is perfect for it. So running Aurora serverless, for, for my own personal blog would be be kind of in, and it's a perfect use case because it, like, it is I get I get like eight hits a week <laughs> right right and it can handle that and then if you if you were to get tech crunched like it'd be fine yeah indeed. you should probably and, plug your blog otherwise you're going to continue getting eight hits a week excuse me <laughs> go ahead, yeah go ahead and plug your blog what is it upstart chrisick.com cool now you're going to get more than eight hits a week hopefully <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's see. The other, I guess the other thing I want to point out too is just a little, a little like Aurora Serverless. It, there's not a lot of magic here. Like you said, it's really just you're just you're just doing vertical scaling, which makes a lot of sense, right? They can't do horizontal scaling because 
that's one of the the issues with the relational data model is like in order to get horizontal scaling, you have to partition and partitioning right. relational data is really difficult. So right. that's why we use NoSQL for really scalable. When we have systems that have to be very, very scalable, like NoSQL is really the only option. And that's why they were, they were built. So something like Aurora Serverless to be like handling the dealing with vertical vertical scaling, you know, it's totally in line with 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 that philosophy. And you know, the real magic here just comes in from that Aurora storage layer and the be the the ability to quickly switch, you know, basically from it's not EBS, right? But it, it's the it's the equivalent of you know detaching from one EBS volume and and, and wiring up to another one, um, and then flipping the switch and then changing the routing. Mm-hmm. Actually, you reminded me of something, and this is an open question. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure, but Anub mentioned that Aurora Serverless doesn't. I think you said doesn't support read replicas, which is a kind of a big deal. So if you have a really, really heavy read system and you you've been relying on read replicas to kind of scale out a bit, yeah, Aurora Serverless might not be the one you want to choose. It's probably better for transaction processing type workloads. Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, you're probably going to be paying like the same. You're going to be overpaying, right? Because it's it's not going to make it. It's not really distinguishing between read and write traffic, mm-hmm. like, exactly type thing, right? So because again, you're not provisioning anything yourself, so you're, you're and you're you know you're not specifying things like read replicas. You have the single endpoint coming in, right? Like you're not just doesn't have that support. Yeah, um, it does feel like a bit of a weakness to me, and it, and it feels like a solvable problem where they could notice that most of the traffic is read, and they could add read replicas. And I wouldn't be surprised if they do at some. That's just my prediction. Yeah, I mean. It, I mean, th- there's nothing technically stopping them from from doing it. Like, and think they could, like, they have all the metrics, right? They see every transaction coming in. They have the metrics on it. They know what your what your traffic pattern is, right? They know whether or not yep, it's exactly. it's the right thing to do to to be able to have better read and performance. Control of routing because they've got yeah. the proxy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a lot of work, but it's it's definitely it's a it's a it's almost a foregone conclusion if serverless has the traction right mm-hmm. and that folks are really are really using it and adopting it and taking off like if they kind of keep pitching it as like this is really good for like test databases and you know for devs to spin things up quickly and spin them down and you know infrequent websites type stuff then like kind of wonder like is it even would they devote those kind of resources to it but you never know yeah i think yeah i think they will and and he was i think just to, just to kind of clarify they talked about those workloads because they wanted to be able to be good at those and you know some other workloads so i don't know that that's, that's the only types of workloads that they were considering they they just wanted to make sure they understood that you know that they could handle a variety of workloads right yeah but hopefully they didn't miscarry that. Yeah. No, I, I think I mean, the other way of looking at this too is like something like Aurora Serverless makes a lot of sense when you're first starting out. But once once your software, your service has been out there for a while and, and you now have some predictability and then yeah. that probably makes, makes sense now to switch from it, right? It, it's almost, it's the same, like this is the same model across a bunch of different things. It's definitely true for like when do you host your stuff in cloud versus go on-prem, right? And so we've seen a lot of companies that will do this. Like they get to an inflection point where it's like, I'm completely overpaying to be running in the cloud. And so you see them pull their stuff out of the cloud and go on-prem. Pretty sure Dropbox did this not too long ago. There's other companies that have done it. And so that's the great thing about the cloud, right? You don't have to 
have this big upfront capital expense. You can have, you don't need to have make any predictions. You don't have to know how much you need, right? It's just capacity on demand, but you're paying a premium for it. Yeah. And so the same thing here with, with, with Aurora serverless and any, any of the serverless technologies, right? You're going to pay a premium for that. Right. And at some point you're going to hit an inflection point where it, it definitely is like, Hey, this is not like I'm overpaying now. This is not the right solution for me. Right. All right. Great. Well, thank you very much for talking with us about that today. And thanks, Rich, for putting this together. We'll talk to you next week. All right. See you guys. Later. Well, dear listener, you made it to the end. We appreciate your time and invite you to continue the conversation with us online. This episode, along with show notes and other valuable resources, is available at mobicast.fm forward slash six four. If you have any questions or additional insights, we encourage you to leave us a comment there. Thank you. And we'll see you again next week.